This episode is brought to you by WeatherGuard Lightning Tech. At WeatherGuard, we support design engineers and make lightning protection easy. You're listening to the Struck Podcast. I'm Dan Blewett. I'm Alan Hall. And here on Struck, we talk about everything aviation, aerospace engineering, and lightning protection. All right, welcome back to the Struck Aerospace Engineering Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dan Blewett. On today's show, a lot of interesting Boeing news. We'll start with the 777X. It's got some certification issues, some problems that are maybe going to bump back uh, the certification date, but we'll see. Uh, We'll talk about the 737 MAX 10, which is starting flight testing, and also the private jet market is pretty hot right now, as is a lot of uh, industries like cars, for example, used cars are crazy. So private jets, not surprising. We'll talk about whether that will continue in the engineering segment. We'll talk about GE and Safran t- uh, telling a new open rotor engine, which is pretty interesting looking. I know this has been tried in the past, but they are hoping that this can come to fruition in a, by about 2030. Uh, we'll talk briefly about GoGo and Starlink, another couple quick bites about that. And then in our EVTOL segment, we'll talk a little bit about drones. The FAA has released some new guidance and a, a required test for drone pilots in U.S. airspace. And then some new, um, pretty interesting testimony has, has occurred in the WISC versus Archer fight um, that appears to perhaps exonerate Archer. So um, we'll dive into that towards the end. So, Alan, let's start with uh, the 777X. So they've had a little hiccup with certification where the radome or sorry, the nose of the plane was sort of bouncing up and down a little bit unprompted by the pilots and the FAA was not happy about this. Um, how does this, we talked a lot about certification, obviously, this seems like a big issue or just kind of a typical small issue along the road to certification? Uncommanded uh, inputs or in, uncommanded uh, flight control surfaces are a huge issue, depending what phase of flight it is. So if that happens while you're close to the ground, you may not be able to recover. Yeah. And that is on a safety scale. Um, you could you can overstress an airframe doing that. There's a lot of things that can go wrong. You can, be, you can, you can get yourself in a lot of trouble real fast. You could stall an airplane in theory. There's a, so uncommanded movement of a control surface is usually ranked in the hazardous and occasionally catastrophic, depending on the phases of flight, mm. from a safety standpoint, from a 1309 safe, system safety assessment sort of thing. So when the FAA uh, gets involved in an uncommanded motion or uncommanded action that happens on the control surface, they usually want to know why it happened and what you're going to do to fix it and prevent it from happening again, because it shouldn't shouldn't have happened in the first place because because before you get to flight test, the, the, the concept is is that those things are already worked out. Yeah. You've, you've done all your software reviews and you've done all your analysis. You've done some sort of ground testing on the system and it never has done that. And so what drove it to do that? And it sounds like from the articles that it's some sort of software issue or they're trying to refix it via software. Yeah. Boeing definitely, it, yeah, they, they ran a software update and uh, it sounds like the FAA is still skeptical of it. Um, whether it's completely fixed or not. I'm not sure. Right. So the FAA will tend to come back to the OEM and say, what caused this to happen? What was what were the, the chain events that caused this 
reaction to happen and demonstrate it. Demonstrate that that's it. All right. And then show me what the fix is and show me that, that this fix actually works. And it seems like it's taking Boeing a long time to get back to the FAA to explain what the updates are. And in any certification environment, when you take a long time to get back to the table to s explain the answer, everybody starts having doubts about the answer because it, it took you so long to come back. Most likely, uh, in those situations when it first happens, everybody says, oh, it's an easy fix. <laughs> and you tell the FAA that, oh, we'll be back here in two weeks, something like that. And then six months roll by and you're you're not back. And so the FAA is wondering, like, what's going on? Is this deeper? Does this not affect not only this system, does it affect other systems on the aircraft? Those are very valid questions. And yeah. Boeing, um, is being, Boeing is in a cautious mode right now, don't you think, after the, the, the 737 situations that have happened and all the changes have been made and... Um, so any sort of flight control issue on any airplane is going to be internally to them. It's going to be super amount of oversight. <laughs> You're going to have managers on managers and technical people, specialists looking over other people's shoulders all the time to make sure that this thing works in the way that we think it's going to work. And we're not going to go to the front of the FAA and make a mistake. That's going to cause your delay right there. Uh, but you know, the FAA sounds now a skittish, like we're not getting back in this aircraft in, until you really explain this to us and expect there to be a program delay because of it, because it's going to take us, you know, six months to review all the data you're going to give us. And we're going to go through it with a fine tooth comb. That's what it sounds like. Yeah. Yeah, it, it definitely um, did seem like a really minor hiccup on the articles that are reporting the story. But like you said, I'm sure there's... Mm -hmm always deeper stuff and it could potentially be a lot more complicated of an issue well yeah if you're if you're on the pilot of an airplane it does things that you haven't commanded it to do you worry <laughs> like that happened here but if i'm on approach and landing or takeoff and this happens uh i'm not sure i care to recover right which is the what drives all yeah. that so that that flight test must have been a real interesting set of data for Boeing to have and to figure out what was going on. It's going to take a while, but uh, you know, in terms of setting back a program, really how much can it really set it back at this point? And how much does Boeing really want to push it forward? Because there's just, there's not a marketplace for the airplanes today. It's going to be in a year or two from now. So, you know, maybe Boeing's just saying, Hey, we're willing to take the hit because the marketplace isn't that good to begin with. So we're okay with it. So be it. Yeah. Well, moving on. Uh, so the Boeing 737 MAX 10 is in flight tests, and they're in their type certification pro process that will perhaps take another 24 months. So what's unique about the 737 MAX 10? Well, it's finally an answer to some of the Airbus uh, NEO airplanes that Boeing really hasn't had a response to. Uh, <laughs> so Airbus is out with the NEOs 321 and when it comes to mind where the airplane is doing great. It has the customers love it. The airlines love it. It's efficient. It does all the things that they need the airplane to go do. It, it's filling those routes that they have uh, efficiently. And so Boeing is kind of left out of that marketplace because they don't have a, a, a direct competitive aircraft for that Neo. Now they will, it's going to take a couple of years. Um, but they will, and obviously Airbus is working on a next generation thing anyway. So it's in this in this weird space where Boeing is playing catch up. 
to Airbus because a lot of times it seems like Airbus is playing catch up to Boeing forever. Now the roles have reversed a little bit, particularly on that Neo. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure those two companies will always sort of continue to to jockey for position up and down. And oh yeah, yeah. And it, does the seven 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 X is that fill? I mean, what size jet is that? Does that fill that that niche or no? No, triple seven is the twin aisle international fly across the ocean you know la to japan right uh new york to london paris kind of airplane um yeah it's just a much bigger airplane. Gotcha. well speaking of smaller airplanes uh this article from rob report is basically talking about is how uh private jets are it's a huge market right now people are using them more than ever uh obviously this makes sense you know re-covid that people who had the, the means to do it started doing it because it seemed like the safe thing to do. And then, Alan, do you feel like this is just a trend that's people just aren't going to want to go back to commercial air travel? I don't think they ever really wanted to do commercial air travel. They had the wherewithal not to fly commercially. They did. And they continued to uh, on a on a more on a personal level, not on a corporate level so much. Remember when was it President? Yeah, 2009, right? So it must be 2009 when President Obama came in and made a big deal about fat cat corporate boards flying on their private jets and made everybody like the head of Ford drive from Detroit to Washington, D.C. to testify. That kind of nonsense was going on. And a lot of corporations dumped their airplanes because of the pressure from the federal government uh, to dump them. Mm -hmm. And so there was like a purging happen on the corporate side. But on the on the personal side, there was a buying of airplanes and buying big ones, like Gulfstreams, personal Gulfstream kind of thing. Like, whoa, I mean, Gulfstream's been doing great um, as a company because not so much on the corporate side, but I think on, on the people who have the Oprah Winfrey's of the world that mm -hmm. have the wherewithal to own one. Uh, Mark Wahlberg, I saw, had uh, a big jet recently. Like, I never would have figured that that guy would have a, a big personal private jet. But he Come on, Wahlburgers. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, all those movies have, you know, those uh, movies have finally paid off. But yeah, it, I think you see a lot of sales in the personal jet market where I'm, I may need to go to Vail, Colorado to go skiing. I don't want to fly United to go do that. Bingo. I'll buy an airplane. Yeah, I mean, it always just boils down to what is your time matter to you and it's always relative dollars mm -hmm. too right you, uh, you you make 10 20 million dollars a year you know your twenty thousand dollar flight is the equivalent cost to someone who's making a hundred thousand dollars a year of 200 yeah, bucks true. right the money's relative so and, right and the stock market has a lot to do with it uh, and outside the that little airplane world you don't think about that but i always think high-end yachts and airplanes are in that same space when the stock market goes up even though if the gains are on paper and a lot of gains have been made on paper uh you feel like you have the wherewithal to all of a sudden buy an airplane and then they do and then obviously there's going to be some downturn and a bunch of airplanes end up in the market now is a weird time where COVID has hit and people don't want to travel on airplanes, but the market has gone up at the same time. So they have cash and there's now a real drive to not fly commercially. So yeah, uh, the used aircraft market has been pretty good. And the new aircraft market hasn't been that bad either. So it's fascinating times. Yeah. At the Miami OPA lock executive airport says private flight gains were 91% uh, 
compared to the same uh, period in June of last year. So pretty interesting. That's a, Isn't that that's crazy? A big, it's almost yeah. double. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, the same thing was happening in Europe. There was an interesting podcast uh, probably six months ago, maybe maybe a year ago. So maybe it's last summer talking about the, the number of flights in and out of some of the airports in Europe and then how the business uh, the business jet, uh, personal jet, mark, my, my interpretation is personal jet market, there was still a lot of travel mm-hmm. going on commercially way, way down. But they're like at 60 to 75% of normal traffic on the personal – I'm going to fly to Greece to get away from the COVID – those flights are still happening, so yeah, it's a fascinating, it's fascinating marketplace and a fascinating time for aircraft manufacturers. All right, so moving on to our engineering segment, uh, really cool collaboration between GE and Safran, which is a, a French company, touting a new open rotor uh, engine design. So, really great article from the Seattle Times, which we'll link to below, but. Alan, this seems like so weird from from an outsider like myself who, so you know, I know jet engines and what they look like. They always have the duct outside, right? They they seem very protected, like these like these blades wouldn't be able to exist in the harsh environment outside. But that's not actually the yeah. case, is it? No, uh, this is what what I would term as an unducted fan. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there was a a bunch of work done back in the '90s, I think, by NASA when they had put an unducted fan on the side of a DC nine and flew it, um, and maybe that was GE. I, I've, I've lost track since it's such a long time ago. Uh, so the concept has been there for a long time. So it's basically a propeller uh, on the outside. You can see this, this big fancy aerodynamic shaped propeller, and then it's got this core like a turbofan uh, hot section that spins the propeller. So it's like a jet engine without all the jet engine parts on the outside of it. Uh, but they're looking to drive down um, the amount of fuel burn and be more efficient. Now, there's a lot to that. Uh, and back in the last go at this 20-odd years ago, didn't seem to go anywhere. No one wanted to use it. Uh, there wasn't a marketplace for it. They never went into production. There was a lot of studies done on it, but it never went anywhere. And so we're, there must be some evolution of manufacturing or inefficiency that, that you know they're willing to take a second stab at it. Or it's more of a sort of a PR play on some level of showing they're trying to making motions towards being more efficient, which is where all the European regulators are going. So they have this thing, this unit they've been toying around with for a while. You bring it out, you show it, uh, maybe you get some investors in it. Who knows? Maybe you have an airline get interested in it. But I think in this sort of regulatory environment that ran in the United States and Europe in terms of uh, less CO2 emissions, you got to show progress. And the engine manufacturers don't have much to show today besides things they have done in the past. And I think this is one of these things they've done in the past and they're now bringing it to the forefront again and saying, hey, we are been doing a lot of work on CO2 reduction and we have made a bunch of effort and we are willing to go do the extra things. Uh, so lay off a little bit, Okay. Because uh, the engineers at our companies are working really hard on reducing CO2 emissions and making it one of the most safest forms of travel in the world ever. Um, and it kind of feels like this press release is, has that same sort of feel. So is there any risk for a, a, a fan blade breaking off and causing, oh, yeah. I mean, like, you know, the, 
jet engine typically sure. has this nacelle that provides, I mean, is it just aerodynamics or is it meant to provide some protection? I mean, what's the main, I'm sure there's many advantages. It's, it's a combination. Both. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a combination of both. Uh, there's a there's a retention system on jet engines, a supposed, supposed one. I know we had that, was was that a 777 engine that, that let go over over it was the united recently, flight right? i'm not sure the the number of the was plane it? yeah okay i wonder if it was a i, I don't know why triple seven sticks in my head on that uh where the containment system didn't really work right and so i just ripped them to sell off but yeah there are some features to jet engines which are which are nice in terms of safety you don't have when you have rotating propellers spinning around um you still have I mean, yeah, you, you you design in ways that the any engine, any power plant uh, can take a lot of damage without coming apart, like birds hitting it. How do you handle that? You have to shoot birds at it while it's rotating to show it doesn't come apart. I mean, those kind of things happen. Uh, and then I, I, you know, I don't really worry about blades coming off too much anymore, except for maintenance issues, maintenance uh, oversights that tend to be the real driver right now. Engineering wise, I think the as the engines come off uh, the manufacturing floor as a certificated engine, we have done remarkable improvements in the last 30 years on the safety of those engines coming off the line and, and the reliability has gone up tremendously. So tends, things seem to ha happen in maintenance now more than anything else. So the problem with a new engine, obviously, and a new type of engine is it's going to take time for the maintenance crews to figure out where the foibles are and how to repair them and make sure it's safe on every flight. There's your, there's your downside risk, not so much the engine design. Mm. And then noise, I know, was a concern about this type of design in the past. Um, yeah. Yeah. What are they going to be able to do to, to reduce noise on this? Well, with our computational power, um, and <laughs> the ability to do a really complicated CFDs accurately, uh, better than, than 10 years ago, for sure. Uh, they can do things to reduce noise because of the blade shape. If you look at the, if you look at the blades on this particular motor, they're complicated shapes. Um, ideally you, you reduce the, the speed of the blade. So there's combination. You want to reduce the speed of the blade, but every rotation cuts through more air. So it takes more power uh, to propel you forward. So that's how you lower the, typical lower the noise out of these things is slow the the rotating bits down a little bit and it's going to be less noisy. And that looks like that's what's happening here. All right. So last, uh, last topic here in our engineering segment. Uh, Starlink and GoGo, some news from both. So GoGo has tested some other 5G systems. They've installed uh, antennas on their um, on ground towers, and they're getting their 5G uh, system, you know, up and running into the testing phase, which is a big milestone for them. Uh, and then on the Starlink side, Elon Musk has recently said that they might take as much as $30 billion to keep Starlink um, from going under. And it's funny because in a very flippant way, he's like, yeah, you know, we'll see how this works. So if we don't go bankrupt, we're definitely going to need, you know, probably like 30 billion in a classic style for him. But, you know, he basically said that they're going to need a couple, you know, multiple million customers paying the 99 per month fee. And of course there's the, the, uh, the little transponder box, uh, is also not cheap at the moment that you have to set up to, to receive the signal in your home or, you know, wherever you're setting it up. Um, but obviously $30 billion seems like an incredible amount of money, but this is also a big business, you know, like Comcast or any of these other companies that provide, you know, digital infrastructure. 
invest multiple, multiple tens of billions of dollars into towers and all this stuff. So it's not out of the realm of, yeah. um, it's not as crazy as it sounds, but, um, you know, let's first start with GoGo. So obviously GoGo has been a big player in, uh, in-flight internet for a while. Why is this 5G mm-hmm. milestone so important for them? And are they going to continue to be a big player? Yeah, well, there's a significant part of the aviation community on the, particularly on the corporate aircraft or personal jet side uh, that needs or wants to have internet data, basically operate your phone in the airplane. And to do that, uh, you need to transmit 5G, right? Everybody wants to play a YouTube video while they're flying, and that takes a certain amount of data, data speed, transmission, right, to, to go do that. And 5G has that. Uh, and so the transition to 5G was going to be almost automatic. They had to do that because the, the demand was there. The trickier thing is trying to get all those towers and airplanes uh, set up to accept it, and which has taken a while. And it's an, again, it's a huge investment to, to do that. So you, you're piling the money up front into infrastructure and then gaining it back monthly if you think of it that way. And that's a really funky business model because as GoGo found out on the satellite side that it didn't really work out economically. There's so much risk in the infrastructure versus the reward on the, on the payment side that you can become upside down in that as a business in that. And that's what Starlink's worried about too. And Elon Musk is worried about the same thing that, that GoGo is worried about in a sense, just on a much larger worldwide scale, it's expensive to launch spacecraft. It's expensive to build little spacecraft. It's expensive to launch them. And then it's expensive not to have paying customers for them while they're spinning around and then eventually falling back down to earth. So you need to have a revenue stream almost immediately uh, Motorola ran into that problem years ago on their uh, system. Gosh, lost track of what that one was called. Um, they had a system back in the 90s and early 2000s that was going to be doing a very similar thing. And it just bombed. They didn't have enough customers for it. The, the interfaces, the handheld units to interface with that spacecraft to make telephone calls was what it was. Satellite telephone calls um, was just so clunky that mobile phones have moved on. And so they kind of got beat by the the ground-based mobile phone. And Starlink's got to be having that same sort of fear of terror that uh, the spectrums of the world uh, can upgrade their infrastructure on the ground pretty quickly if they want to, especially particularly where the majority of the users are. So if they did New York City, Houston, Los Angeles, and some of the big cities, Chicago, and just some of the big cities in the United States, that could really eat into a Starlink profitability model, which is would be somewhat reliant upon those those users. That's where the majority of the population base is in the United States. If you're trying to get farmers into Nebraska to use your service, it's going to take a heck of a lot of farmers uh, because they're just so remote and they don't have high-speed internet. Um, you're going to have that, but it's not going to be a majority of your users, you wouldn't think, and it's not going to make your business profitable. So Musk, while going forth with this effort, has got to be wondering what the, how much he has to pump into it before he turns it off. Uh, well, that's going to be and that hundred dollar per month price is, I don't know, that raises my eyebrows a little bit. Obviously, maybe this is people for you know, are they're going to pay for really bad internet otherwise, or not get good service at all? 
So they yeah. might be willing to fork over a hundred bucks a month, but a hundred bucks per month is rapidly becoming right. a pretty expensive Wi-Fi price. You know, here in DC, I have right. starry internet, which is 50 bucks a month for 250 megabytes upload and download. Like I love my internet service. Starry is great company. Yeah. Um, there you go. I've had no issues with it. So paying double that, I mean, and I upload, you know, obviously these podcasts to YouTube, like I do tons of uploading. Um, more so than downloading. I don't watch as much TV as probably the average person, but I'm a pretty heavy user on the one side, like upload speed's important to me and I couldn't be happier with how fast it is. Like I don't need more speed than we have. So I wouldn't pay more for, I wouldn't pay double for a slightly faster internet. Like it's about as good as I need it to be, yeah. you know? Yeah. Well, if you've watched on YouTube, the, the reviews for Starlink are fascinating, but the people that, the one I have followed is a guy up in Canada that installed it. He's out, I think he's out in our Calgary region out in, in the wilderness and that's it. And this is, this is how he's going to get internet and it's worth it. And he, he gives it rave reviews because there is no other alternative that's as inexpensive as that. Everything else is more expensive. There you go. Right. And that's gotta be what Musk is worried about because as the data rates go up in general, overall, everywhere, you've got this huge infrastructure floating around the earth that you can't necessarily upgrade. You have to launch better spacecraft. That's a good point. <laughs> to, yeah. to upgrade your system, mm -hmm. right? There's your trouble because in it, like a, a, a geosync in a spacecraft, I think the lifetime when we were designed, my wife and I designed those things in a, in a previous life. I think the design life for them was like 12, 13 years before they run out of propellant and start to wander off. Uh, so if it back in the, 90s when we were doing that work you didn't project a huge change in data rates uh, and didn't need it you didn't need it uh so the, the spacecraft had a had a useful life and so if you had to put a spacecraft up and do all the things you wanted to do and project 10 years out that's damn well impossible and that's why geo synchronous is going to be a, a, a much harder sell versus leo uh just because you can, in theory, the older technology is going to fall to earth and burn up and I'm going to keep launching up better and better stuff, but I got to have the user base to do that. I, I've got to be constantly telling my users and having more speed and more speed and more speed and more speed. I got to keep ahead of the spectrums all the time. And so it's a race and the margins can get small in those races. And Musk doesn't like working on small margins because he needs it to fund a bunch of other stuff that's going on. And so he can't have for a long time you can't have a huge money suck um and, and that's where i think they're going to draw the line uh, right uh because the spacecraft yeah. launch business is going really well but there's only a there comes a point in time where he may need 30 billion dollars to go into this business and doesn't have it and it'll be over like many other things that happen in space it happens all the time All right, so in our, our final segment today, we've got uh, some drone news and some Whisk Archer patent lawsuit news. So let's quickly um, talk about drones here. So Alan, the FAA is now mandating that all <laughs> recreational drone pilots take this between 15 and 30 minute test called TRUST and uh, it's just an acronym. And it's just basically helping people understand some of the regulations, airspace, just do's and don'ts and um, I mean, this seems like a necessary step for people to just have some awareness of what they do and how it affects other people and other aircraft and, um, the environment, I guess. But, um, 
it's an online test doesn't seem super invasive you don't have to go to a local airport or fly your drone it's not like getting your driver's license but um do you feel yeah. like this is a useful thing or is it just kind of a little superfluous will, will it make an impact i don't think it's going to make an impact and as weird as that seems americans don't like taking tests and don't like being forced by the government to do things they don't that they were just doing days ago so i think there's going to be a significant portion 30 to 50 percent of users that won't do it that flat out won't do it and the faa has to know that they're not faa is pretty smart about how what human nature is at this point so they have to know that that's going to be the case but they, i guess they figure that who the people that do take it that knowledge is going to transfer over and like don't be stupid right be smart with your drone don't put it in airspace <laughs> don't do things that are dangerous right don't fly it near nuclear power plants those kind of things uh it should seem obvious to most people but they feel like they got to say it and make you take a test on it um I guess, you know, it, it, I, on something that can buy anywhere, it just seems hard. It's just going to be a really hard thing to implement, in my opinion. Most people won't even know about it. They won't even know it exists. Well, and you wonder, well, there could be a couple of things. So number one, perhaps, and this is pure speculation because I haven't dug this far into it, but, you know, like, uh, for example, with a DJ, like I own a DJI drone and mm -hmm. it knows when it's in restricted airspace so like i live in dc i cannot yeah. possibly fly it here it will not take off it refuses to do so <laughs> so it's quite possible that maybe if you have if you take this test you get like a code that shows you've completed it and you have to enter that code into your drone software where it won't let you take off unless you have a code like that 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 oh, seems like a pretty man. easy thing to do oh, i just I, I just thought of that just now and it seems pretty pretty easy right like dji could easily I, build I, that in there i see hack right they could. I, I see hacking galore. I see yeah, but a lot of what's, hacking websites. What's the upside to like spend effort hacking it just so you don't take a fifteen minute test? Ah, you know? come on, it's an American pastime. That's that's true. <laughs> that's true. But yeah, you know, it's going to be a YouTube video almost instantaneously on how to crack this thing open. Would take more time sure. than taking the test for sure, but. Well, oh sure, yeah. but that's part of the adventure, right? Come on, yeah, I mean, that's true. That, the American that's, cowboy, you, cowboy you way. Know, an 18-year-old American male is going to sure as heck try to break it rather than taking the test. <laughs> That's true. And this might just be the FAA's attempt just to be like, look, we, we, we tried. Like, we know there's more people flying drones than ever, so don't sue us. Or they probably have to do something, yeah. right? They probably have to, they to do. do something. Yeah, They do. Mm -hmm. They do. They're the safety organization associated with flight. Yeah, so, how many yeah. years going to go on They're without some kind of driver's license? Well, uh, yeah. Uh, well, no, I don't. I don't think that's ever going to happen. But uh, well, I was just referring to I this as like F a driver's license. Yeah, I don't think, like you said. Yeah, but... now I got to take a driving test. No. I'm going to fly this thing. I don't. I don't think that's going to happen because then you have you would have revolt. Uh, but there, I think there's uh, sort of being the adult in the room situation for the FAA. It's like if they don't do it, they seem like they're being negligent, yeah, exactly. and not doing their fulfilling their role. You're right, but they. They have to realize there's going to be a significant portion of the population that's not going to play ball. Have to. <laughs> what are you going to do? Yeah. All right. There's no civil penalties. I don't think there, at least I haven't seen them yet. I haven't seen any civil penalties for getting in that. If you didn't have that, that test completed and you got into a situation, it's not going to buy you more time in jail. There's no civil penalties for it in, in America. If there's no penalty for it. If there's, even if it's a $20 penalty for it, people just do not care. It's going to go by the wayside. Mm -hmm. So final item on the docket today is this Archer and Whisk patent lawsuit. So 
obviously Whisk uh, sued Archer for essentially copying their design. And after some initial testimony at a hearing, uh, there's a statement out by Archer from their, I assume their legal team, and they've said basically that Wisp provided no evidence whatsoever that forensics, uh, forensic investigation could not find any documents, um, and basically nothing to corroborate their claims that Archer received these, um, these documents or any other Wisp trade secrets. So obviously this yeah. is on Archer's website, this, uh, this main press release. But it's from the court filing, a lot of these um, these quotes, and this didn't seem like this is their opinion. This is like this is our this is what happened in court, obviously with their take on it. But Alan, having read through this, what were some of your takeaways from this uh, this latest in this uh, this patent fight? I think when you read the language, you know that that language chosen for a particular reason. So you need to play with it a little bit to see what they're saying and where the boundaries are in the statements. One of them was that Archer does, had done a forensic deep dive, so to speak, and didn't find any WISC documents on their computer system. Okay. You don't really need any, honestly. You don't need any. As an engineer, I don't need to take my confidential information from let's just play this out if i had information from airbus i wouldn't have to walk into boeing to use it i, I would just walk out of airbus and i wouldn't have it in my head i wouldn't know i don't i don't need the paperwork yeah. to do mm -hmm. this right i i don't need it uh now whisk is claiming that a bunch of files were downloaded before certain engineers left now you no matter what Archer is going to say here, Whisk is going to have at least an argument that documents went to engineers, engineers walk into your facility. That's the same thing as a document walking in. Those are equivalent. Yeah. Uh, so if you can't find a piece of paper or a little uh, a PDF file or whatever with Whisk's name on it on your servers, it doesn't necessarily prove anything in terms of trade secret and uh you know maybe even patent issues now the, the the second issue which is that uh archer says they filed a patent first and the whisk filed a patent after they realized archer was filing a patent uh yeah that would be that would be normal i think if whisk didn't expect their data to walk into archer why would you file the patent? You're still working on it. You're still trying to hone it, still trying to, to put the touches on it. And you can make confidential filings if you wanted to. But there, there's, there is a lot of gray in that statement from Archer, which makes you think, yeah, okay, certain things probably did not happen. They're, they're, they're claiming that they didn't happen. But th those things don't need to take place for there to be a transfer of information. And I think that's where Whisk is saying, hey, look. People walked out with our stuff and showed up in your company and blammo, you got the same aircraft that we have. Something's up. Mm -hmm. and, and it could be all innocent. It, could, it may be all innocent. And the, the courts will have to figure that out. But it just doesn't feel right from Wick's point of view. And, and yeah, it shouldn't. Uh, so this is going to go on a while. Hmm. Yeah, it, it, obviously the the drawings are eerily similar so that's something that's mm -hmm. hard to ignore but i think you're right i mean yeah. you know i'll give you an example in my hometown there was a great crab cake place that was um 
great <laughs> oh. crab cake, like a high, like a high end restaurant, like a this nice sit down restaurant. And they're one of their chefs left. And I don't know if it was acrimonious or just, you know, part ways on good terms. I don't yeah. know. But that same crab cake has been offered at this like much more casual rent like place for many, many years since they have a booming crab cake business. Like I get them shipped anywhere. I've got them shipped to the Midwest. I mean, they're incredible. Like you said, he didn't need to steal a secret document to walk with that crab no. cake recipe. He just knows it. He's made nope. it right. And so if you're in the engineering right. room, you know what's been talking about, right? Like you, you might not know the formula for a certain composite or something that's like very technical, right. but for the most part, you could sketch out an airplane design. You could say, yeah, these, these, they're doing four engines and they all produce X amount of thrust and they're car, you know, they're doing the, you yeah. can get the vast majority yes. of the recipe, right. Without having any yes. trail to it. So that makes sense. Yeah. Oh, sure. This sure. And if, if you play that, well, just like the, it's just the crab cake, cake example in your, and as the example of this airplane thing, because airplanes can get complicated, but if I'm the chef and I know the recipe and I walk into my new place and I know the recipe, I'm going to tell everybody else the recipe, right? I'm going to show them how to do it. Yeah. And then everybody knows, right? And then, it, then it's just like everybody knows. And, and like you said, <laughs> and, how do you enforce, like, you? what do you do with that guy? Like, hey, you can't make that crab cake. Why? It's like, it's my crab cake. Like, I... I mean, that that's like you said when it's in your head it's just knowledge how can someone mm. limit that that's a really complex issue it seems like wow yeah. i i can tell you in days gone by how that happened which was you, you broke the guy's kneecaps i mean that that's how the, those things <laughs> were taken care of on the street uh before we became a quote-unquote civilized society with a bunch of iphones and cameras around yeah. so they, they can't do that anymore but in aviation it has been a tough marketplace for a long time. And you hear stories that are scary about uh, taking of, of intellectual property or trade secret information and what was done to people. Uh, yeah. And, and, and today's world, you don't, we don't think like that. Like there could be a guy in my parking lot mm -hmm. when I come out of work, breaking my, you know, slashing my tires and doing that kind of nonsense. But that stuff happens. And it does happen in in other industries. I still see that stuff happening, but in this particular case, it seems like in Silicon Valley, that's not a way that business gets done. Yeah, you know what I mean. Well, hopefully it shouldn't, but but yeah, that's no, definitely but, happened in the past. And even in like oh, the yeah. the Theranos story of their technology not working, <laughs> they were you know the people that were trying to uncover the story were getting. Yeah. threatened and it was a crazy thing you know like watched yeah, mm -hmm. yeah they put people outside the house at the very right. least intimidated yeah oh private detectives and all that well you don't think well i'm gonna go out on a limb here and guess you don't think there's private investigators outside people's homes right now i think there are i think i totally think there at least or have been uh, to figure out what the heck's going on and, and yeah you're in this really weird space where uh, ideas are being transferred in theory from one company to another and, and the company that thinks they own them wants to find out what the hell's going on. And they have the right to find out what's going on on some level, but you do cross that line from like civilized business yeah, to thug society business. Mm -hmm. into the mob, mob right. kind of business. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Theranos is a perfect case, right? I mean, that, there's a Silicon Valley darling and they were putting the thumb on a lot of different people and you just hope that in this in this whisk archer situation that you hope that 
cooler minds prevail here, I, I don't know how else they're going to settle it because this will just eat up time. And money and, and lawyers' with, fees. And money. Yep. Right. And both sides have cash so they can fight for a long time. And, and the lawyers went out and engineers get stuck. And, you know, it's the same old, same old. The American litigation system. What a what a wonder. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, that's it for this week's uh, Struck Aerospace Engineering Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you listen, YouTube, obviously, and check out the show notes below for links to some of the articles we mentioned. And we will see you here next week on the Struck Aerospace Engineering Podcast. All right. Well, that'll do it for today's episode of Struck. If you're new to the show, thank you so much for listening, and please leave a review and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Check out the WeatherGuard Lightning Tech YouTube channel for video episodes, full interviews, and short clips from the show. And follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Our handle is at WGLightning. Strike Tape, WeatherGuard Lightning Tech's proprietary lightning protection for radomes, provides unmatched durability for years to come. If you need help with your radome lightning protection, reach out to us at weatherguardaero.com. That's weatherguardaero.com.